morning. The scripture reading for today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. And you can follow along in page 6 of your bulletins. If I speak in the tongues of men and or of angels, but do not have love, I am a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to the hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now, we only see a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Thank you, Ariel. Next week, I will be preaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 14 as we continue in our study of this great letter in the New Testament. And that's a passage of scripture that will take us uh, deep into the issue of women in the church and in church leadership. And this is an important topic, uh, one that demands attention and care and discussion and, and prayer. So, Next Sunday, right after service, uh, we're going to be hosting a a special community forum around this topic, and we're going to be discussing questions uh, related to that passage, uh, but also others as it relates to the topic of the ordination of women, um, as well as the formation of a new role in our congregation that we're calling the Shepherdess. And we would love for you to be there. And those of you that know other members of this church that aren't here presently, please pass on the word. We'll announce this more broadly, of course. Uh, We're going to provide lunch uh, because we do want to remove every barrier we can uh, so that you can be there. And that also means we're working on pulling together some child care uh, for those of you who are families and would like to actually uh, pay attention. Was that an applause? Uh, So all you'll need to do is um, RSVP. So we would love for you to join us next week downstairs for this important 
conversation and forum. Uh, so please stay tuned. Let me pause and pray as we turn our attention to the 13th chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. Let's pray. Jesus, we're asking that you would come and send your spirit as we remember again on this Pentecost Sunday that you're a savior who promised never to just leave us alone as if we were orphans far from you, but you've given us your spirit that you administer to us closely, giving us comfort, uh, speaking truth to our hearts, illuminating the words of scripture that we would see the gospel, see your face all over again in a transforming way. Those are your promises. Those are your Pentecost promises. And so we pray that you would come and do that. Send your spirit and make these words come alive to us. Cut us to the heart if you would please. Uh, bring us to repentance and renewed faith in Jesus. Help us to bow our knees before you and your word and teach us to be more like you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to know how many of you got up early yesterday to watch the royal wedding. How many of you, or at least maybe spent the rest of the day, who, <laughs> we have some reluctant people, and I, I did, I did, 5 a.m., I did. Uh, certainly, some others may have spent the rest of the day getting caught up on what really was a, a spectacular event, just so many things that captured the curiosity and gaze of people all around the world, maybe even yourselves. Megan's dress, the length of her train, uh, the, the glamour of the royal family and all of their guests, that preacher, man, making all of our jobs this morning a little bit tougher by comparison, right? The gospel choir, watching Harry mouth the words, you look amazing, and then biting his lip, oh, right? <laughs> Very sweet. Personally, I declined my invitation, didn't want to upstage David Beckham, right? You know? No. Now, whether or not you personally cared to watch the royal wedding yesterday, you might have maybe expected that our passage this morning might have been in the lineup of readings during the ceremony. After all, it's one of the most popular readings from the Bible at weddings, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. But if you've been with us over the last couple of months throughout our study of 1 Corinthians, you may know by now that the Apostle Paul at this point doesn't go into a soaring explanation on the meaning of love because the ancient Corinthian church needed a good wedding reading, and you know that he's not going into this topic just to give them a good Bible verse or two to crochet onto their decorative pillows. Rather, the reason why he teaches them about love was because they really weren't very good at it at all. Like me, maybe like you. What does this passage teach us about love? Lots of things, of course. We're going to talk about three. First of all, the priority of love. And then secondly, the pattern of love. Thirdly, the permanence of love. Three things we learn about love in this passage. First, the priority of love. Secondly, the pattern of love. And third, the permanence of love. 
Let's take a look first, the priority of love. The first three verses, that first paragraph of this chapter, couldn't be clear that in the estimation of God, love really matters. Verse 1, if I speak in the tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. And then in verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. Verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor, pretty impressive, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain Nothing. In other words, take heed, beloved. No matter how much the words from your mouths make you sound impressive, at home or in church or at work, no matter how much they make you sound super spiritual, as it were, If your words don't build others up, it's all just worthless noise. No matter how gifted I might be, no matter what talents and abilities God might have given me and that others might recognize, if I only use my talents and abilities to make me look like a special something then I'm, in fact, nothing. No matter what you know or how much you know, if it's not handled with love, your knowledge is trash. No matter what personal sacrifices I make for someone else, no matter how helpful they actually might be in that time to that person, if I do so begrudgingly or resentfully, or maybe willingly but still boastfully to win recognition or status, if in my heart even my giving to the poor is all about me and my gain, in fact, I gain nothing. Because love is everything. Which is, of course, what Galatians chapter 5, verse 6 teaches us, where there also the Apostle Paul says this, the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And which is why Jesus himself taught this when he said in Matthew 22 that Everything that God commands of us, the totality of our duty as human beings before God, everything can be summed up in two commands. Love God with your whole life and love your neighbor as yourself. What is God expecting of you? Love and love. So immediately, here the question we need to ponder is this. Does love matter to you as much as it matters to God? 
If I finally get that job, but work only to serve myself rather than others. If I daily complete my to-do list with awesome efficiency, but care nothing about the people around me. If I spend a lot of time with people, but only to become more popular or to get my needs met. If I'm fighting for the right cause, but with the wrong heart, one filled with contempt, especially for those who oppose me. If I achieve success, however I define that, but in the process have become a more unbearable human being. If I do all these things, if I become all these things, if I say all these things, if I achieve all these things, but have not love, none of it matters. Because love matters most. Uh, my dear friends, what are you, what are we assuming is your greatest need today, your highest calling today. Here's what God's word is telling us. To know and to experience the love of Jesus so richly, so abundantly, so overflowingly that you yourself are becoming a better lover of other people. Your greatest need, your highest calling what ought to be the deepest ache of your heart today. Will you make this your prayer today? More than anything, my chief desire is to love well. Teach me to love, O oh Lord. If you're a parent, will you make it your chief goal for your child? Not that they'll just be happy or not that they'll just be more accomplished, but that they'll learn to love well. If you're a neighbor, will you make it your chief goal to love well? A worker, a son, a daughter, a friend, a member of the church, a visitor, a citizen of this world. Love is God's priority for you. Is it yours? But what is love anyway? Right? But what is it? What kind of love are we really talking about here? Many people have pointed out that the, Paul, the word that the Apostle Paul uses here that's translated love is agape in the ancient Greek language. It's a word that means to treat someone with care, respect, self-sacrifice. But probably the most important thing about his use of that word, which really has a broad set of meanings. The most important thing to know is the word or words that Paul doesn't use when he describes what love is. He doesn't use the ancient word eros, which refers to romantic love, the kind of love that we normally think of, sentimental love, emotional love, romance love the most popular and most celebrated kind of love amongst us. That, you know, is a love that's ignited by attraction. It's what you give to someone that you are attracted to. Now, of course, that's not a bad thing 
in itself. But the love that this passage is talking about is a love that you give to those that you find unattractive. Love that is not a, an outflow of a natural desire or bond or draw towards another person, but a supernatural one. Love of a person that can't pay you back, give you something in return. Anthony Thistleton, a New Testament scholar, says this about the kind of love that's presented in this passage. Christians are not to love only those whom they find attractive or who share their values, social status, or theology. What motivates Christian love is a prior experience of the love of Christ, not a reciprocal return to those who are kind to us. Paul doesn't give us just one straight definition of love. Instead, he just starts describing all the things that love is, or rather, all the things that love does. You can't see it perfectly in the translation that we have before us here, but every one of those descriptions of love that we have in verses 4 through 7 is actually a verb form. Love is active. Love does. Love doesn't just feel. It does feel, but it more than feels. It does. It sacrifices. It moves. Fifteen characteristics of love are given to us in verses 4 through 7. This is a pattern of love, the second thing that we learn in this passage, a pattern of love. We're going to look at these things really quickly, and I want to invite you to listen for just one thing, one thing that just rings in your heart, catches your attention. What aspect or attribute characteristic of this pattern of love do you most need to zero in on in your heart and in your life in the coming week? Listen up. What is love? Verse 4, love is patient. That means being slow to retaliate when someone hurts you. It, it, it means being what the old translations used to describe as being long-suffering, bearing the offenses of others. It, it, it means standing in relationship even when it's costing you something. It means curbing your desire just to rush in if that's, in fact, what's best for someone, to give them space and time. As someone has said, love does not blunder in or blurt out. Love is patient. Love is kind. That means showing pure and unselfish concern for the well-being of others. Love does not envy, does not look upon the successes of other people or the happinesses of other people and only burn with resentment because you don't have the same. Love, in fact, celebrates when others have better and do better than you. Can you imagine that? Doesn't it require something supernatural, something that we don't have? Love does not boast, does not brag in our successes, does not point out ways in which we have done well, 
Love is not proud, which means doesn't get puffed up, doesn't overinflate and seek attention to one's self. In fact, love turns in the other direction. Love insists that you all noticed others more than you noticed me. Because love talks about others more than I talk about me. Gives credit to others more than I insist you give credit to me. And then at the end, I'm glad about it. Love does not dishonor others. Doesn't shame. There's a sense in which this also points us to the way in which love actually inhabits public good manners. Uh, even in the basic sense of courtesy and civility, a common respect for other people as being made in the image of God. Love is not self-seeking, we see in verse 5. Our natural bent is to just be preoccupied with myself. Does not mean I'm aggressively manipulating every situation and relationship for my own good? But maybe a little bit. Maybe that's what I'm rooting for in my heart. A mind and a heart that's always preoccupied with ourselves. Self-seeking. Always thinking about me. Not able to be in a conversation without at some point interrupting and relating everything you just said to glorious me. Hey, I feel that way. Hey, I thought hey, that happened to me too. Hey, me. Oh, love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily Anger does not have outbursts of a temper, is not easily, not just filled with rage, but even not easily just annoyed, ah, just annoyed, you know? Love is not easily anger. Love is not easily offended. As a friend and colleague of mine, Scott Sauls, has put so compellingly, he was our retreat speaker last fall, he said Christians ought to be the least offended people in the world because our tanks are just that full, full of the love of Christ. Love keeps no record of wrongs. You could even hear the, the sort of the image of just a, a long, you know, endless sheet, not, not a sheet of paper, but like a, a line of receipts just streaming out of a printing press of just offense after hurt, after wound, after offense, after sin, after evil, and all the things that have been done against you. And listen, every one of us has such a record. Love keeps no record. Everyone has that record because we are living in a broken, sin-filled world. We have been hurt. We have been sinned against. We have had evil done against us. Love rips it up. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, which means you're not quietly happy when someone else screws up. Even when and especially when it makes you look a little bit better. You're not rejoicing in someone else's failure. 
or mistake, and you're certainly not quietly rooting for them to fall on their face. You don't look forward to lecturing someone for their mistakes. You know, love, as someone has said, never relishes the opportunity to say, I told you so. Love rejoices with the truth, verse 6. Applauds and joyfully celebrates truth, which is also a reminder that love here is not just sentimentality. Love desires the truth of God to fill people's lives and lives to be aligned with God's vision of how life works best in accordance with his gospel and his word. Love rejoices with the truth. Love always protects, meaning doesn't throw people under the bus, doesn't exploit people's vulnerabilities and weaknesses, even the weaknesses and vulnerabilities of your enemies. Love always trusts, even when it means taking the risk of being hurt for the sake of doing good to others. Love always hopes, which means gives people the benefit of the doubt. Love gives people the benefit of the doubt. Doesn't expect wrongdoing or ill motives, even when there has at times been a track record of such doesn't give in to cynicism and hardness of heart towards one another. Love always hopes. And love always, finally, verse 7, perseveres. Never gives up. Most especially on the possibility of someone doing good and someone changing. So now what? A long list. Pick one. What's one characteristic of love that you can focus on this week? In what specific way would you like to grow in love? Or put another way, how do you see yourself or feel yourself failing to love in this way? What might it look like for you to love like this? And it's humbling, isn't it? Humbling to draw your attention to all these manifold ways in which love, the love of Jesus, expresses itself. A pastor and teacher in the UK, Sam Albury, recently wrote... You want to realize how unloving you actually are? Well, just swap your name for love here in this passage and see how it actually sounds. You want to hear how it sounds? Duke is patient. Duke is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. Is not proud. Does not dishonor others. Duke is not self-seeking. Is not easily angered. And I can't go on. Can you? Can you? As you just have flashes before your own eyes of all the ways that you fail to love. It's a humbling exercise. And our brother Sam then gives this encouragement. You want to realize how perfectly loving Jesus is? Swap his name for love and see how it sounds. Because you know it's true, don't you, beloved? Jesus is patient. 
Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy, does not boast, is not proud, did not and does not dishonor others, was not self-seeking even unto death on the cross for loveless people like you and me is not easily angered. In fact, even as he hung on the cross, cried out, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Jesus keeps no record of wrongs, forgives us again and again and again, does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. Jesus always protects, always trusts, always hopes. Jesus always Persevere. Bishop Michael Curry yesterday at the royal wedding said this as he explained the power of love. He said, Jesus didn't get an honorary doctorate for dying. He didn't sacrifice his life for himself or anything he could get out of it. He did it for others, for the other, for the good and well-being of others. That's love. You want power to love like this, and so perhaps you are overcome by your own failures to love. You're convicted and moved by this passage and seen in real concrete, very detailed terms, ways in which you've been falling short in the call to love. Where do you get the power to love like this from the one who loves like this? From the one who already has loved you, or at least has offered to love you like this in the gospel. Do you know the love of Jesus like this? As one commentator put it, the only way to love like him is to receive love from him. This is the pattern of love, not just the standard, not just the outline of what love ought to look like in your life, but also giving you a glimpse, a picture of the Savior from whom you can draw this kind of love from. The pattern of love. Thirdly and lastly, the permanence of love. By which I mean the way in which this last paragraph from verse 8 and on teaches us this, that love will literally last forever. This is still part of Paul's argument for the greatness of love and why we ought to pay attention to it, he tells us love will literally last forever. He says in verse 8, love never fails. In verses 8 and on, he talks about the ways in which all other kinds of spiritual gifts which the Corinthians and we ourselves tended to focus on, even lust after, build an identity around talents and abilities. And yet Paul says all those gifts will one day cease in all their power and glory. Verse 8, where there are prophecies, they will cease. We won't need that kind of teaching anymore. One day we will actually know and see Jesus for who he is. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. Why? Verse 9, for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. 
And here the apostle is saying that there's so much in this life that's incomplete. Our understanding of who God is, our understanding of ourselves. Things now are partial, but one day they will be perfect and complete. Verse 12, for now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I'm fully known. And so again, we live in this time, in this world, in which we understand things in life almost like looking through a blurry and dim mirror or reflection. One day, we will understand ourselves and God himself as well as one another as though seen finally face to face with such clarity, with such directness and immediacy. We shall know fully, but we don't yet. Paul even likens this to a yet-to-be-full-grown child. He says in verse 11, When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. In other words, we currently live in this state of fragility and even a bit of immaturity in our failures to love. But one day, there will be a day when we will be fully, finally grown up in our love. Not yet, but we're heading there. What is it that the apostle is talking about? When will we see clearly and perfectly? When will we know fully? When will we love with maturity? When will completeness and perfection come? What's Paul talking about? He's talking about heaven. And what he's explaining is that in heaven there will be nothing but patience and enviless love. Nothing but kindness. Nothing but the absence of boasting or pride, no dishonor. No one will be self-seeking, never easily angered, keeping no record of wrong, never delighting in evil, rejoicing with the truth always, always protecting, trusting, hoping, and persevering because love is forever. And no one has described this better in history than Jonathan Edwards who wrote a book on this 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians called Charity and its Fruit, and the last chapter, which in fact was the last sermon that he preached on this topic, he called Heaven is a World of Love. And let me then just quote extensively from Edwards, the way in which he describes what Heaven in fact will be. God the great cause and fountain of love is there in heaven. Heaven is a palace of the supreme being who's both the cause and the overflowing source of all heavenly love. God will be there. And not only this, but there are none but only lovely objects in heaven. There's nothing wicked, nothing unholy. 
And not only are they lovely, but each shall be perfectly lovely, lovely, perfectly bright without darkness, perfectly clear without spot. Love resides and reigns in every heart there in heaven. Love is in God as light is in the sun, and love flows out from him toward all the inhabitants of heaven. And guess what? There is no secret or open enemy among them. Not one heart in heaven is but full of love, nor one person who is not beloved. Having no pride or selfishness to interrupt or hinder its exercises, their hearts shall be full of love. All that whole society in heaven rejoice in each other's happiness. And if the love be perfect the greater the prosperity of you, the beloved, the more is the lover pleased and delighted. Not envious, but delighted in your greatness and joy. There's no room for envy. The joy of heavenly love shall never be damped or interrupted by jealousy. Heavenly lovers will have no doubt of the love of each other. They shall have no fear that their professions and testimonies or love are hypocritical. Can you imagine that? Not ever doubting. When someone says, I love you, not ever doubting it, ever. They shall be perfectly satisfied of the sincerity and strength of each other's love as much as if there were a window in all their breasts that they could see each other's hearts. The saints shall know that God loves them and they shall not doubt the greatness of his love and they shall have no doubt of the love of all their fellow heavenly inhabitants. In this world, there is so much to hinder them in their love here and now they find themselves, as it were, hampered or chained down. Do you ever feel that way if you, as you try to love, hampered and chained down? They cannot do as their love inclines them, but in heaven they shall have no such hindrance. They shall have no difficulty in expressing all their love. Their soul, which is winged with love, shall have no weight tied to the feet to hinder its flight. And they shall know that they shall forever be continued in the perfect enjoyment of each other's love. They shall know that God and Christ will be forever. And that their love will be continued and be fully manifest forever. And that all their beloved fellow saints shall live forever in glory with the same love in their hearts. The paradise of love shall always be continued as in a perpetual Spring. Heaven is a world of love. And so what does this mean as Paul calls us to loving one another as a priority, giving us these patterns? And he tells us now that love is permanent. Well, what difference does that make? Well, number one, to apply this quickly, four quick things. Number one, take heart. If you're in Christ, you need to know you're going to love perfectly like that one day. Hallelujah. The love of heaven is coming your way. You're going to love perfectly.
perfectly like that one day, guaranteed. Take heart. Don't be discouraged. It's coming quicker than you think. Number two, when you love in this life, be encouraged. That means you are manifesting nothing less than the very life of heaven itself puncturing through your sin and fallenness and giving this broken world a glimpse of the glory of heaven through you, through your words of kindness, through your selflessness, through your resistance against envy and jealousy, through your sacrificial service towards one another, in your words, in your deeds, in your heart, eternity... The love of heaven is breaking into this world through your life. Be encouraged that you would be counted as such a precious vessel of God's eternal heavenly love. Number three, if you want to know this love, if it sounds attractive to you, if it feels like perhaps the very thing that your heart and life craves... Today, you have the opportunity to receive this fountain of love in Jesus. Jesus, who promises that if you would simply receive him and all that he promises to be for you, having died for your sins, all of your lovelessness, and risen again to give you his spirit, to enable you now to love like him, if you embrace him, he will not only welcome you, with a loving welcome into the eternity of heaven, this world of love for all of eternity. But he'll give you the experience of that love even here and now. Don't you want to today to drink from the fountain of the love of Jesus? Are you thirsting for him? Are you thirsting for that kind of love? Are you beat up by the lovelessness of this world? Come to him. Come to the one who is himself the heaven of love. And fourthly and lastly, if love is forever, that means love is supreme. Right? This is Paul's point in this paragraph. Everything else will fall away. Everything else has its place, but its need will die away. If love is permanent, if heaven is love, then love is always the point. And so the apostle concludes in verse 13, and now these three remain faith, hope, and love. And you know faith is crucial. We cannot be saved apart from faith in Christ, believing in him and trusting in his promises, but even faith shall one day pass when we finally see Christ by sight, face to face. Hope is crucial. We cannot endure to the end, we're told, and we experience every day in our weariness. We cannot endure without hope in the resurrection, without hope that evil and sin will one day expire, without hope that Jesus is coming back to make all things new, and yet even hope will one day come to an end when our future finally becomes today. And yet here is love. 
which will not only not expire, but will actually explode across eternity with ever-increasing power. Because heaven is not only a world of love, but also a world of ever-increasing love. And now these three remain faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And so will you make it your priority in all your endeavors and dreams? Will you follow after the pattern of the one who loved you so, who gives you the power by his love to love in like manner? Clinging to the permanence and eternality of the love of God, will you echo these great words in your heart and life? And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And so we pray, O Lord, teach us to love. Let's pray. Send your spirit, because we're helpless to change our own hearts. Give us the love of Jesus. Love through our lovelessness. Change our lives. Give people glimpses of you, even of heaven itself, because of the little ways, the weak and broken ways in which we dare to risk in love. Do this in us, individually and in our community, in our church and in our neighborhood, in our neighborhood and in our city, in our city and in our country and in our world. Do this for your glory, O oh Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.